Hello, everyone. It is good to see you today. And to everyone who's watching from a distance or at a different time, I, I want to say thank you. Hello to you as well. I mean, I love that we have the technology that makes this kind of thing possible. And more importantly, I love that we have people like you, uh, people who are dedicated to taking the time to join us, to, to watch, to participate, even from a distance. So, so truly, thank you. This week, we're going to be looking at a passage in John 17, and, and I have something which may be a bit of a surprise to a lot of you. I'm not going to give a bunch of background on it. Yeah, oh, oh come on. No, no, it's okay. It's okay. That's, I, variety is important, and I'm not going to spend the first five minutes of the sermon giving the background on the book of John or the context of this passage. We're just going to dive right into it. We're going to talk about it, and then I'm going to talk a little about what I think it means for this church specifically. Uh, so uh, you can pull out your Bibles. Uh, this is if the Bible in the seat, I think, under you is how we have it now. This is page 899. Otherwise, you know, your apps, your devices, whatever you have. And as you turn there, if any of you were bummed I wasn't giving the background this week as opposed to celebrating, both are good. They all fit. But if you were disappointed, uh, I want to remind you, we have the Grace Fishers app. If you haven't checked it out, there are sermon notes that are faithfully added by our very own Beth Montgomery into there every week. And, and there's not a lot, but I like to add little tidbits about the Bible verses I mentioned. So if you're ever interested in some of that, you can check out the app. Uh, it also has some great discussion questions. These can be great prompts for journaling or for family discussions or small group discussions. So if you haven't checked that out, I, I highly recommend it. Okay, so John 17, verses 20 through 21. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. So it's Jesus speaking in this prayer, and this prayer recorded in the book of John is a prayer that Jesus makes shortly before he's arrested and eventually executed. And this prayer is really unique because we get a special glimpse into Jesus' own heart for us. It, it, it's not just uh, something that Jesus thinks we should do or be. This is kind of Jesus' wish list. If he could ask for anything, what would he ask for? And that's why this prayer is so fascinating to me. Because deep down, I tend to suspect or I tend to feel that what Jesus really wants from me is to be a good Christian. That, that if he could have anything in the world, it would be me with the power to do the right thing. And to be clear, he, he does want me to do the right thing, absolutely. But that's not what he asked for here. Let's take a look at verse 21 again. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. He didn't ask God to make us morally perfect. 
He asked God to make us perfectly unified. Jesus asked that we would be one together. Just as Jesus and the Father are united, our unity would be that close and that real. And this passage can really get to me at times. Because this is the passage when Jesus prayed for the future church. When Jesus prayed for me. He wasn't worried about how good a person I was going to become. The thing he asked for me was that I would have the power to stick with all of you and that we would have the power to stick together. Oddly enough, Jesus said repeatedly in this passage that our unity is how the world will know Jesus is real. He said it in verse 21, and here it is again in verse 23. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus said that it is our unity together that will prove to the world that Jesus is real. The hope is that the love we have for one another will be so strong and so undeniable that there will be no human explanation. And now throughout history, we've had little moments like that. Uh, The Romans, they, they were not particularly impressed with Christianity. I mean, our beliefs were strange, our rituals were weird. We were really just one more of a lot of religions they had at the time. But there was one thing that they noticed that men and women and enslaved people and free people and people of all cultures and ranks ate together in unity. In fact, we have writings from non-Christians talking about this. The world notices our unity or lack thereof. More importantly, our loving unity is the thing Jesus asked for most of all. And he didn't ask in vain. I believe that he has given us the power to actually do this. Our church can be a home of loving unity. We, us, can be a people of loving unity. We can actually do this. Now, all this can sound a little abstract, so I want to give you a picture of a house of loving unity that I've been to. It's my grandparents' house. Well, actually, it's my grandparent-in-law's house. The first time I visited, they were not even my in-laws. I was dating Hannah, we're married now, and this was the first time I was meeting her grandparents. And we drove up to their house, and I met them, and they were lovely, and then I lay down on their couch, and I took a nap. (laughs) And if you don't know me very well, this may seem like a fairly normal thing to do, but, but the thing is, I don't take naps during the day. And one of the reasons that I don't usually take naps is because I really struggle with the feeling that I have to earn my rest. Now, now that's a lie. I want to be very clear with that, but it's something I struggle with, and so I usually don't take naps. And I especially don't take naps at other people's houses. (laughs) 
Because another thing I struggle with is that I want to make a good impression. And I want people to know that they are important to me. And I want people to know that I love them. And I struggle with the fear that if I'm not a good host, or if I'm not a good guest, or if I'm not just a good person, people are going to think that I don't love them, or that they're not important to me. And this was my first time meeting her grandparents, so normally these fears would be up to 11. But when I walked into that house, it was just good. All of these struggles and fears, they just didn't occur to me. That house was so full of love. And it's not like they were all over me with compliments or giving me cookies or encouraging me to rest. It happened the moment I walked through that door. Now, there are lots of reasons this particular house was blessed. I mean, these were two people who had spent decades in selfless, dedicated service to God. I mean, this was a house that was covered in prayer and long faithfulness. But I would find out later that her grandparents are a blended family. They both had previous marriages, and when they married, they brought children from their previous marriages. They also brought the pain of loss and struggles that required a lot of forgiveness, forgiveness of people in their past and of each other. But they chose to be one. They chose a loving union. They chose it over and over and over again, no matter how much it cost them. No matter how difficult it was, they kept choosing love and unity over everything else. They endured one another's shortcomings. They celebrated every victory and relying on Christ at all times. And through those years, that kind of love changes people. And it changes places. So that when I walked into that house, without knowing a shred of their story, I knew that I was loved. And I was safer than I thought was possible. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. May they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. We can be that. We can actually do that or something very much like it. Because their marriage, my grandparents' marriage, it was built by and on and through the love of Jesus. And that was the power that held them together. And that same love, that same power, is what we have as well. And at times, I think this church does have that. I've heard stories of you guys walking in through these doors and just having that happy sigh. 
And I've heard about being in small groups when you shared that thing that you thought you could never share. I've heard moments about how our community has been that safe space, that rest in the storm, that source of unconditional love. We have those moments, but a lot of times we don't. A lot of times we gather here on Sundays as a small group, as volunteers, and we're still careful. It can feel like we have something to prove. It can feel like we still need to make a good impression. And I know that many of us, myself included, often feel that we need to be careful what we show one another. We have to make sure that we don't talk about that subject. You may know the feeling, and it seems that every week it only gets stronger. If people knew that that was your hobby, or that they were your friends, if they knew that was a show you like to watch, if people knew your position on that subject, or your beliefs on that issue, well, we, we just make sure not to talk about those things in church. Despite our best intentions, it is easy to feel that at church, you have to be a little careful. You don't know what people might think of you. It's not like my grandparents' house. So why not? What are we missing? Why do we only have these moments of loving unity? Well, I don't think we failed. I don't think it's some fatal flaw. I think it's because we're still building. We are not finished as a church. We are in process. And that means that we have a choice. We have a unique power to shape who we will be for ourselves and for others to come. This church is being built. And if you are part of this community, that means that your words and your actions will determine what this becomes. So how do we build it? If we want to build that kind of loving unity, how do we do it? Well, building loving unity has really looked different across history and culture, uh, for the Greeks, it was really important to have a ritual meal together. And, and in a lot of Rome, it was really important to meet in one another's houses. And for a lot of our history, helping out with practical needs and household chores or working on the farm has actually been an important part of Christian unity. And I think today, it would be really good if we had some meals together. I think it would be really beneficial if we met in one another's houses. I think we would be blessed immensely if we started helping one another out with some practical needs. But there's one thing on my heart that I believe can be the bricks that build up this church into loving unity. Forgiveness. And this is the part where I want to get crazy practical and crazy real. I'm going to be talking about this church in this culture and this community. And so I'm going to tell you a story of something that happens. It's a pattern that happens over and over in our church, 
and in churches like ours. It's something that I have seen and I have experienced on just about every side. But it's also very personal. And so I don't want to assume that you've been through it or that your experience is like mine. So I'm just going to talk about what I've experienced. It's the experience of being hurt by someone at church. Someone says something up front, and I get annoyed. Because how could they possibly say that? I mean, do they know how that sounds? Do they know how those words come across? Or sometimes it happens when I'm volunteering. I mean, I'm there, and I'm passionate, and I have this idea, and then somebody, maybe a volunteer or a staff member, they just shut me down. And I'm hurt. And I'm insulted. And I'm embarrassed, and I am so frustrated. Or I'm in a small group, and I finally open up. And you know, and it was really hard, but I'm going to tell you this thing. And someone makes a little offhand comment, and it cuts me to the bone. And I'm devastated. And, and I'm thinking, I thought you were Christians. How could you say something like that? How could you possibly think that was appropriate? This all has happened to me. This and much more has happened to a lot of people. This is real life. This is the kind of thing that happens. And when it happens to me, that anger and hurt and pain well up, and it's like someone has placed a stone in my hand, and a stone has weight, and a stone has heft, and there's a part of me that just wants to chuck it right at him. But that's only one option. I find in my experience that there are three common options when I have that stone of pain, that frustration, and honestly, that heartbreak. So option number one, I can throw it at them. I can hit back. I can set up a meeting. I can write an angry email. I can make an angry phone call. Or, you know, I don't have to do it in person. I can gather my friends. And I can talk about how messed up that person is, how ridiculous it was what happened, how wrong they were. I can throw stones at their reputation. I can attack the church from a safe distance because they hurt me, and I want them to hurt too because they deserve it. Of course, that's only one option. Option number two, I can hold on to it. Because throwing stones, it can feel really unchristian. So, so maybe I won't throw it. I'm just going to hold on to it. I won't tell anyone how I feel. I won't talk about how they hurt me. I won't mention what I think. I'll just hold on to it. I'll remember what they did. And I won't forget how it felt. But the problem with this is that stones are heavy. And they're probably going to wrong me again, so now I'm going to have two stones, and then three, and then six, and then 20, and before long, I am going to be so weighed down with the record of everyone else's wrongs that every time I step through the door of the church, I will feel so heavy and so sick that I just won't want to be here anymore. 
because I will be tired of remembering all the bad things that church did to me. Holding on to a stone of hurt is incredibly destructive. And you may have heard warnings about this before, warnings about holding grudges. People talk about it from time to time. But the third option, the third option is something I have rarely heard warnings about, but I've seen it again and again, especially in Christians who've been in church for a long time. Option number three, I can drop it. Now, on the surface, this option seems the most Christian. Someone hurts me, someone insults me, they upset me, the stone is in my hand, and I drop it. Someone who drops a stone usually says something like, well, you know, the church, it's full of imperfect people, and, and they're only human, this kind of thing happens. Th there are no perfect churches, I know, and, and I know I'm not perfect either. I'm sure they meant well, or I'm sure it was just a big misunderstanding. I'm probably being too sensitive. If you have found yourself saying those kinds of things after being hurt at church, you may be right. In fact, you are right that the church is full of imperfect people, and you're right that hurt happens and you're right that we're only human, and you may be right that it was all a big misunderstanding, but as your friend, as your brother, I don't care that you're right anymore. I care that you're hurt, because you matter, and your feelings matter. And if it was a big misunderstanding, great. It'll be that much easier to resolve but I am not here to explain away your hurt. I'm not here to justify it. I am here because in the bottom of my heart, I want to help heal it. I don't care if you're right. I care that you're hurt. Because the reality is that when you receive a stone of hurt for any reason, justified or not, and you just say, oh well, and drop it, it lands right on your foot, and you will walk through life with a limp. And I have seen too many volunteers, too many staff, too many members, too many Christians walking through church with a limp because of all the hurt they have taken on and explained away, and you were not made to limp at church, you were made to dance. So please, if you are hurt at church, don't just drop it. So what do we do? What do we do with these stones of hurt? I believe that these stones will become the very building blocks of our church. I believe our church can be built on forgiveness. We already know that the forgiveness of Jesus is our foundation. His forgiveness of us is why we're here. It's the only reason to be here. But our forgiveness of each other is what will keep us together, 
built on his foundation, we're going to use the same materials. His forgiveness of us is the foundation stone. Our forgiveness of each other will build the church. And you see, this is the crazy wonder and power of Christians. The enemy has to work in order to tempt us. He has to work to draw us into sin. But because we follow Jesus, because we walk the path of forgiveness in our hands, even sin can be used to build the church. The stone of pain and hurt can become a building block of forgiveness. To forgive someone is to choose unity in the face of hurt. To choose to stay together even when it's painful. But remember, remember, we're not just dropping the stone. Forgiveness is not explaining away the hurts or quietly choosing to ignore it. If we are going to build a church, we need to find where the stone fits. That means taking your hurt to someone who is wise and someone who is trustworthy, telling them what happened, telling them how it made you feel, and then, and this is the important part, asking them, what should I do with my hurt? What is the path of forgiveness in this case? Where does this stone fit in the church? Sometimes a wise person will tell you that the path of forgiveness is going to the person that hurt you, setting a meeting and humbly talking with them about what you experienced, about what you saw and heard and felt. Because there's honestly a lot of times when the person who hurt you had no idea what was going on. They had no idea how it came across. And as soon as they hear, they'll, they'll be falling over themselves to, to apologize and to work to prevent it in the future. But sometimes a wise person will tell you that you need to meet with a third party, a staff member or a pastor or an elder. They may be in a better place to bring healing, or they may be in a better place to bring justice. Because some things are just a big misunderstanding that needs mediating. And some things are a wrong that, that the person really needs to confess and apologize for. But some things are a serious harm that has no place in the church. And our pastors and our elders have been entrusted by God to ensure that justice is done here. And sometimes... It's important to bring our hurt to those who've been entrusted to do justice. And sometimes, a wise person will tell you that your hurt requires more prayer before sharing. They'll tell you to spend more time writing or journaling or talking between you and God before you consider bringing it up with others. There's been a hurt in my life that I am very glad that I did not set a meeting to resolve right away. I needed more time in prayer and in journaling. In fact, I needed years of time in my case because I was dealing with a whole mixture of hurt and also pride. And God did not want me to bring the hurt to the church until I brought my pride to him. 
but I know that conversation has been good for me because it has drawn me closer to God and to all of you. If we want to build a church of unity, I truly believe that forgiveness will be our building blocks. And if we want to do that, the first step is to ask those wise, trustworthy people, where does this fit? Where do we take it? And then the next step is to humbly bring it there. Actually do it. Set that meeting with the person who wronged us. And the humble goal is not to tell them how they were wrong. The hope is not that they'll fall on their knees in front of us. The goal of the meeting is that we will leave truly unified. The hope is that I will discover they actually love me more than I thought. Or that I'll discover that I love them more than I thought. And this means that when we come to the pastor or the elder, we don't come asking for punishment or the destruction of someone else. We come in the anticipation of healing. We come in the hope that this community is more than the hurt we've received. We come in the desire to remain unified. Please, pastor, tell me how we can make this work. Because it doesn't feel like we can, but I'm hoping that it's possible. And most of all, we come in the desire to bless. Because if there is harm within our community, we need people who will tell us. That is a blessing to us all. More than anything else, placing that stone of forgiveness means that when we come to God, we can come in the posture of Jesus and pray just like he did. Father, I pray that we will be one just as you and Jesus are one. As Jesus is in you and you are in Jesus, may we be united in love. And if all of that feels a bit wordy, we can make it real simple and just pray the prayer that Jesus himself taught us. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. We can do this. We can build a church straight from the heart of Jesus, not by being perfect, but by forgiving one another with the same love that Jesus forgave us.